baptism, we're going to do it. We're going to solve the issue with the debate right here on the Patriarchy Podcast. So join us as we build, fight, protect, and lead. This is the Patriarchy. Rise up, for men of God have done with lesser... <laughs> Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That was Proverbs 27:17, and I am Pastor Joseph Spurgeon. You are listening to the Patriarchy Podcast on Roundtable Media, a ministry of Sovereign King Church. It is good to be back with you today, and we have a special episode, one I've been looking to for quite a while. I've been wanting to do an episode like this for quite a while. What we're doing today is we're going to be debating baptism. Uh, my church is very unique in a sense of uh, uh, this one thing makes us unique is that in our church we have those who, who believe in pedo baptism that is infant baptism and and uh, baptism is for believers and their children and then we also have those who are credo baptists those who believe that a profession of faith is required for uh, baptism and uh, we allow charity and we have unity together. We even have elders and pastors who are allowed to hold their position on the time and mode of baptism. Um, And this is not because these are unimportant matters. They actually are important. Uh, What, who you baptize says a lot about what you believe about the Bible. We, We believe the Bible teaches this explicitly and we are to obey it. We also believe that men of good conscience have often read scriptures and 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 come to different conclusions on the time and mode and uh we we believe that because they're men of good conscience they're they're believers they they hold the unity of the faith that christ is the son of god that faith in him alone is what saves he is lord that he is risen from the dead and all the things that are in the the apostles creed because of that we are united together in Christ, and so we're not going to divide what Christ has united. But this does not mean, however, that we don't fight. We don't uh, uh, argue and debate. The truth is worth standing on and standing firm on. And so two men who believe should be able to wrestle and with the truth and be like iron sharpening iron. And so that's what we're going to do here today. We're going to have a debate on the issue of baptism. Now, this, again, this is a long-held debate in church history, at least from the time of uh, a little bit after the Reformation onward. And so we, we believe we're not going to be able to settle the whole thing here today. We're only going to have a set time. I'm, we have a set uh, format for this debate. But we do believe that we're going to be able to, to, to bring out um, questions and things for your further study of the issue. So I'm, I'm excited. I have two men that are that are going to come onto the podcast and debate this. Uh, Tanner Cartwright, who is an elder 
or a pastor at Reformation Church of Shelbyville. There's probably no church in the, the Southern Indiana, Louisville area, Kentucky area that we are closer with than this church. And the work that they do is such an encouragement to us. And so to have Tanner come on, and the thing about Tanner is he's a pastor, but he also is full-time uh, a worker building fences. And so he's a man's man, hard worker, and a layman, right? He's not a seminary grad, not someone who can lay, uh, stand around all day and, and, and just study. And yet he has not only developed his skills with building the fence, but also with uh, 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 handling the Word of God. Also have with me uh, Zach Jackson, who is going to be uh, uh, debating from the Pado baptist side and making an argument regarding the covenantal inclusion of children. And so uh, Zach is not a pastor either. Uh, in fact, he does not hold an office uh, yet in the church. He is a godly man, though, and he does help instruct and teach the men of Sovereign King Church. And, and, and as a man, has worked hard with his hands as well, and uh, also with his brain to study the Word of God. So this is what I'm excited about. You're about to see two men, not credentialed scholars or those kind of things, things you usually see in a debate, but two men that you would find in your churches who love the Lord, love His Word, and they're going to come together and, and work uh, to defend their positions. So I think you're going to enjoy this. Hey, welcome back to the Patriarchy Podcast. We are ready for the debate, the one that's going to end all debates on baptism. Once you watch this, you'll just never need to debate it again. <laughs> so no, it is good to be here. I have uh, two men with me who I, I respect highly. Um, one of them, you've, I've been on the podcast before. The other one is a member of my church. But we are here, we are going to be discussing and debating baptism. Uh, men ought to be able to, uh, to debate, to debate the truth, because the truth can stand up to scrutiny and yet still love each other and, and, and work together where they can, uh, can agree. And so it's good to have two men with me who uh, embody that, uh, that in their work. Um, so let me go ahead and I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce our, our contestants here in this debate. And then I'll give you the format of uh, what we're going to be doing, and we will get started. So let me first by first introducing Tanner Cartwright. He is 32 years uh, old. He's been married for 10 years. He has six children. He is a uh, pastor or elder at Reformation Church in Shelbyville. But his uh, full-time job is he builds fences. And so please uh, welcome uh, uh, Tanner Cartwright to our show. So Glad Tanner, to good here, to have Joe. you with us. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. And then uh, uh, next con contestant is uh, Zechariah Jackson. He is uh, 42. He's been married for five years, and their fourth child is due next month. Zach is uh, one of the leaders of our men's ministry at Sovereign King Church, and he uh, he works at an asphalt uh, uh, plant producing that and. He's heard all my asphalt jokes about it. So, uh, Zach, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate the uh, opportunity to do this. All right. Well, let me uh, let me tell us what we're doing here. We're debating the issue of baptism, and uh, I gave both of these men the opportunity to select the question, and they have come up with one. Actually, Tanner was the one that agreed to take this question, so he is going to be on the uh, defense, as it were, and he is the the question of this debate is uh, a profession of faith must precede baptism. That is, uh, baptism is only for professing believers. 
And so that is going to be the, uh, the, the uh, Tanner is going to be taking the affirmative of that. And Zach is going to uh, be opposing that and giving the opposite. So what we'll be doing, we'll be having two 15-minute sessions, uh, opening statements from each person. And then after that, each will get a 10-minute rebuttal. After the 10-minute rebuttal, we will have 20 minutes total of, of cross-examination. Each person is going to get two five-minute times. And that cross-examination is, is really the time when a lot of the debate comes out. That's when they get to ask each other questions back and forth. And as the rules are, uh, the person asking questions is, is just simply asking questions. And the other person is given the opportunity to, to answer them. And then finally, after that, they will each get 10-minute uh, closing statements. And then after that, I'll come back and we'll, we'll wrap things up. So this is where we're going. I'm excited for this. If you're, uh, if you're listening, you, you might want to get a piece of paper down. Uh, I remember uh, Bill Shisko. I watched a debate he did a while back, and he said, take a piece of paper, flip it a horizontal, and make a, a two sides on it, and just write down points that you see each side making so you can keep in track and flow the arguments. Uh, we believe that truth is important and uh, Jesus is truth. And so on this issue, it is important that we get to the truth. And uh, so I'm looking forward to it. But with that said, let me get my timer up and we will give Tanner uh, 15 minutes opening statement. Tanner, as soon as you see the, the, the timer start, go ahead and begin. First of all, thank you, Joseph and Zach, for putting this on. Um, while we're divided on this topic, this is just about the only thing that we three do not agree on. There's very little that, that we don't agree on. Um, and, and as far as that goes, there's few churches, if any, that we feel as close to as Sovereign King Church. Uh, my goal today is not to drive a wedge between us, but to show that we as Reformed 1689 Baptists are being as consistent as we know how to be and do not believe that we have warrant from the scriptures to baptize anyone who has not professed faith in Christ. So my goal today is to show that when we look at the Old Testament in light of the New and not vice versa, we see that a profession of faith must precede baptism. I'm arguing that the New Covenant signs are defined first and foremost by the New Covenant Scriptures and by the Old Covenant Scriptures only in light of the New. So, where do we begin? While there, are, while there were proselyte baptisms going on before the New Testament, we do not have biblical record of that, so I'm going to start with the baptisms we see in the Gospels. This is not exhaustive, um, as we don't have time, but I want to give us an overview of how baptism was viewed in the New Testament. So, in Mark 1, 4-5, it says this. <clears throat> Excuse me. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So here we have confession and repentance preceding baptism. Matthew 3, 6, And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. There again, speaking of John, baptizing. And we see confession of sin preceding baptism. Repentance, confession, preceding baptism. Matthew three eleven, John said, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
And so here again, we see that repentance is required for baptism. John 3, 22 through 23 says this, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the into Judea, went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. So you see here people coming and being baptized, it's intentional. The those who are coming and being baptized are those who are making a conscious decision to um, to repent, to believe, to come and to be baptized. And you see this, uh, if you go down to, to chapter 4 there in John, in verse 1 and 2, it says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So his disciples are baptizing, and obviously there's a difference in John's baptism and the, being baptized in the name of Christ. And we recognize that John pointing forward to the Messiah. And now that the Messiah has come, we're baptized in his name. Um, and so then we move from the Gospels to Acts. And Acts 2, uh, 38 says this, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we see repentance required for, for baptism. It precedes baptism. Acts 2.41 So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So here we have the reception of the gospel preceding baptism. Uh, Peter preaches the gospel, and, and all, in fact, everyone, all of those there were preaching the gospel. And you, know, they, you have the, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says to uh, repent and be baptized. And then Acts 8, 12 through 13 says this, But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So we see belief before baptism. What we also see here is men and women being baptized on profession, which was completely different from the old covenant circumcision. They're not assuming that this is following the same pattern. This is a new pattern. This is different. This is new. They are, they, and, and we see this very early on, that men and women are both receiving baptism. And there doesn't seem to be any confusion as to why that is. Uh, Acts 10, uh, 1 to 1 2 says this, speaking of Peter and Cornelius. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. And so then we jump down to, well, first of all, before we jump down, we see that he was a devout man who feared God with all of his household. So all of his household, is, it, there's a fear of God, there's a recognition of who God is, um, and it, it's not a... Um, it's not his household just based on himself, but he feared God with his household. The whole household's fearing God. Acts eleven fourteen through 17 says, He will declare to you a message, this is speaking to Cornelius, by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? 
It was Peter speaking there, obviously. And so we see that uh, back up in verse 14, which you will be saved, you and all your household. So we see the message being declared to the entire household. The whole household hears the message, the Holy Spirit falls on them, and they are baptized. And so we see it just, in, as Peter says, just as it was at the day of Pentecost. Uh, Acts 16, 13 through 15. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And so we see here that she was a worshiper of God, and that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said. Now, this is the only uh, household baptism where it doesn't speak to the household believing as well. And so some have, you know, made the argument that here that this is, um, you know, they're just baptizing, you know, some possibly without profession of faith. But we have no warrant for that. And the example that has been set up all through Acts is profession of faith, repentance from sin, confession, and then baptism. And so... And, and plus, we have no rec we have no um, explanation of why Lydia here doesn't have a husband, why she's the head of the household, um, and so this could be a widow um, or a you know a, a lady who's not been married. And so, in either of those situations, there would not have been children um, or little children even involved. Um, so in Acts sixteen thirty one and thirty four, we uh, we look at this the the story of the Philippian jailer. It says this. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wombs, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So we see here them, uh, the whole household believing you will be saved and your household believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is the command at the beginning and that everyone in the house hears the word of the Lord. They spoke and taught the word of the Lord to everyone and he rejoices along with his entire household. This is a picture of uh, the message being taught and believed by the entire household. Acts 18.8 Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So we see here again, belief preceding baptism. So together, believing in the Lord together with his entire household. Everyone in the household is believing and putting their trust in the message and the gospel that's being proclaimed to them. 1 Corinthians 1, 14-17, Paul writes, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanos. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So we see Paul, is, his emphasis is not on baptism, but preaching of the gospel. That Paul is not elevating baptism, but saying that I didn't come to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And so the preaching of the gospel is what was what was preeminent for for Paul, and so even within this, where obviously he, it's an aside that he's bringing up the household of Stephanos, but um, the uh, I, I think it's uh, um, 
we can surmise that that as Paul is emphasizing the gospel, that the gospel and belief must precede baptism. All right, I've got to hurry here. Galatians six ten. So then we have our so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So the church is called the household of faith because everyone in the church is baptized on the profession of faith. Galatians three twenty six through twenty seven. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Those who have been baptized are those who have put on Christ, and sons of God are sons through faith. Let's see, four minutes. Colossians 2, 11 through 12. It says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful workings of God, who raised him from the dead. So we see here the putting off of the old man precedes baptism. Romans 6, 3 through 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The death to sin and the new birth precedes baptism. 1 Peter 3, 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God, for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The appeal to God, profession of faith, is what saves, and therefore it must be present for baptism. It's clear from these texts and others that what we see in the New Testament, uh, baptism is fundamentally different from what we see in circumcision. The New Testament baptism is fundamentally different. Circumcision showed our need for something to be done. Baptism shows what Christ has done. Circumcision points to a need for regeneration. Baptism points to the finished work of Christ. Circumcision in the Old Covenant showed the need for an inward circumcision. Deuteronomy 10.16, Deuteronomy 35-6, Jeremiah 4.4, Jeremiah 9.26, Acts 7.51, and Romans 2.28-29. So, we see that we must allow the New Covenant signs to be defined by the New Covenant. We don't just believe the new covenant is an improvement on the old. We actually believe it is a new covenant with better promises. In the new covenant home, the children are raised with the glory of the gospel. The whole of the scriptures, the community of faith, and the great joy and blessing of being able to profess Christ before all men in their baptism. In the new covenant, children get to receive the covenant sign based on their own faith and not someone else's. What a blessing, what a joy that all of my children will get to remember when they publicly proclaimed Christ before all men and were baptized in obedience to the word. Why my Presbyterian brothers want to steal that from their children, I do not understand. Lastly, we need to be watching here in just a minute for the Presbyterian switcheroo that I'm assuming Zach is going to use in just a moment. He's going to immediately begin defining the signs of the new covenant from the Old Covenant primarily, and interpret everything we've seen in the New Covenant through the lens of the Old. This is, of course, a backwards hermeneutic and would be detrimental if used in other doctrines, like the, like the Trinity, for example. And I believe it has caused our brothers to err greatly in this area. And I think we're about to see a prime example of it. And I'll just say this, that as some of that last part was a little, little, little hard, harsh, but... Um, I love my Presbyterian brothers, and as the joke always is, you know, Baptists have more Presbyterians on their shelves uh, than Baptists, and I don't know if that's true for me, but I do obviously 
have a lot of Presbyterians on my shelf and, and um, they're good brothers and we have Presbyterians in our church. And so um, I, um, yeah, but I believe that this is the example we have from scripture. And so this is what we have to hold to and that we cannot and should not cave to using a hermeneutic that looks at the New Testament in light of the old, but that we should always look at the old in light of the revealed, what is, what is further revealed in the New Testament. With that, I see the rest of my time. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, uh, before we move on to Zach, he's going to get his opening statement. Let me just, uh, one of the things I wanted to say in, 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 when I was introducing him that I forgot was that uh, neither of these men are, um, are, are vocational pastors and elders, and, and they're laymen doing hard work with their hands. And and yet they're still doing hard work with their 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 minds, and that's an encouragement I think to everyone out here. And so, uh, Tanner, thank you for that, and I'm I'm glad you got a little fire there there towards the the end of that. So thank you, brother. Um, uh, iron sharpening iron. Amen. So, all right, Zach, you get 15 minutes. Uh, opening statement. As soon as you see the the timer start, uh, go ahead and begin. Okay, uh, the case I'll make today is fairly simple. It's certainly not new, but hopefully it will be fruitful. First, there is no biblical evidence that the sign of baptism is only to be given to those that profess faith. Examples of adult professions of faith throughout the New Testament are not proof that only adults were baptized, and the numerous examples of household baptisms neither confirm or deny if non-professing members were baptized. It is an argument from silence and does not affirm the thesis of the debate. I want to tell you a story. The Bible is a story. It's not written like, like a technical instruction manual. We can't always just open it up, for example, and it says baptize your babies or don't baptize your babies. If it did, we wouldn't be here. But it does tell us a story about God, his people, and his people's children. The Apostle Paul tells us in Acts 17 that God made all things, all people, and he appointed the times and boundaries of our lives. Throughout Scripture in both the Old and New Testament, God tells us about him, ourselves, and how he sees our children. And this teaches us exactly how we ought to see them too. We must learn from God how to understand this life he made for us, the parents he gave us, and the children he gives us as well. As we shall see, the children of his covenant people are special to God. They are set apart and recipients of his glorious promises. Psalm 102 tells us that God founded the earth and the heavens are the work of his hands. And although they change, God does not change. Immediately following this revelation about God's unchanging nature, we are told something about children. The children of your servants will continue and their descendants will be established before you. You see, it is because God is the creator of all things and he does not change that we can rest assured that our children will continue and our descendants will be established. And God, by his sovereign grace, can and will accomplish this. From the beginning, mankind fell into sin, but God promised a redeemer to come and save his people even to our first parents. This promise was reiterated to Noah, whose household was saved from God's wrath, which Peter tells us in the New Testament prefigures baptism. Then eventually God made this promise even more sure through his covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 17, God makes a covenant that he calls everlasting to Abraham and his descendants throughout their generations. God gave the sign of circumcision to Abraham, the man of faith, and also to his infant children before they themselves professed faith as a sign of his covenant for his descendants. 
We learn in the story from the Exodus that when the people of Israel passed through the Red Sea, Paul says they were all baptized. They went on to eat spiritual food and drink of Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 10. Later on Mount Sinai, God speaking through our forefather Moses in the second commandment distinguishes between the children of idolaters and the generations of those that love him. God curses the children of his enemies to the third and fourth generation, but blesses those that love him and their descendants for a thousand. Two chapters later, we are told that God loved and chose the Israelites because of an oath that he himself swore to their fathers. In other words, he loved them because of who their fathers were and the oath he himself swore to their fathers. The Lord did not have set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation. We know from Abraham to Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and beyond that God's covenant promises are made not only to those that believe, but also include their children, descendants, and generations. We learn from the prophet Ezekiel that the throne of David was a type of Christ's own reign and the kingdom that he would bring. Ezekiel 37, My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever, and David my servant will be their prince forever, and I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. The Davidic reign of Christ is for our sons and our sons' sons forever as an everlasting covenant. Isaiah likewise describes this covenant when he says in Isaiah 59, As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. Again, describing the new covenant age, Isaiah says in chapter 65, that those living right now, in our present time, are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord, and their descendants with them. These are not obscure references about national or ethnic Israel. These are promises in God's own story of the new covenant age. It is an everlasting covenant in which the children, offspring, descendants, and generations are blessed. Psalm 103 states, But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. This passage is later referenced in the New Testament book of Luke by Mary, the mother of Jesus. The promises of this everlasting covenant, that is God's righteousness to children's children, do not end at the coming of Christ, but they are reiterated again and again. This is the story that God tells us, and we are still living in it. This is why Jesus is insistent that the little children not be barred from his blessing. In Luke 18, they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them, and when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God is like a, uh, like a child will not enter it at all. He says that the parents were bringing their children to Jesus, and Jesus actually defines this as the children coming to him. In his debate with R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur says this passage is only intended to teach us about how adult believers should have childlike faith. But the obvious question is, who is more childlike than our children? This is why when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus that he has a commandment for the children, referencing the Mosaic Fifth Commandment, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. 
Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Paul assumes not only that the children are saints to whom the book is written and that they are in the Lord, but also that an old covenant law applies to the children in the new covenant church. Not only does it apply, but the blessing under, under the kingdom of Christ is expanded from a promise about the land of Palestine to a promise about the children living along on the whole earth. Indeed, we learn that eventually they will inherit the earth. The Apostle John in his first letter says in chapter 2, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. God has always had a special place in his covenant of grace for the children of believers. It is a clear and consistent teaching for the whole Bible, and there is zero indication that his attitude has changed towards covenant children any more than he himself could change. This is God's story, and we are still living in it. God's love for his covenant children is a constant and underlying assumption of the New Testament, which is why the Apostle Paul says explicitly in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that the child of even one believer is not unclean, but they are holy. 1 Corinthians 7.14, For the husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through a believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. The word here holy means set apart, and it is put in contrast to being unclean. We know that we are all born in sin, so how can a child be holy? This is covenantal language. Things that are holy are not for common use. They are set apart for the purposes of worship. It was a given to Paul. It was so taken for granted that the set-apartness and cleanness of the child of a believer does not need to be argued for, but it is the premise of his argument about marriage. That the children of believers are covenantally set apart is a clear fact throughout the whole Bible. But what does the New Testament mean when it calls something holy? And the holy, and the, the holy place in the book of uh, Hebrews is the land. It's Mount Zion where the tabernacle and the temple were placed. The city of Jerusalem is the holy city. The angels are called holy as opposed to the demons that are unclean spirits. Jesus is called the holy child. The prophets are called holy men. The old covenant is called holy in Luke 1. Romans 11 says that Abraham, the patriarchs, and their descendants are holy, as well as the olive tree of God's covenant, its roots and its branches uh, of the engrafted Gentiles, they are all holy. The apostles are holy apostles. Our brothers in the church are holy brothers. The women of old are holy women. The Levites were a holy priesthood, and the nation of Israel a holy nation. Over and over and over again, references to the church and its members are called holy and compared to holy things, sanctified things, and saints from all generations, just as the child of a believer is called holy. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, Do not give, give what is holy to dogs. We are commanded not to treat as unholy the things that God declares as holy. And this includes our children. They are set apart and must be treated as such. Paul also implies that our children are clean. It's a double negative. They're not unclean. So what does it mean that they are clean? Jesus in John chapter 13 says that the disciples are clean except for Judas. Thessalonians 4 tells us that God has called us not to be impure but to be clean, sanctified. Then he goes on to compare the love we have in the church to the relationships we have with outsiders. To be clean here is to be inside the church. Likewise, in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul, writing to the same church where he calls the children holy, tells us to come out from among them and touch no unclean thing. Listen to the contrast and comparison. 6.14, to not be bound together with unbelievers, 
For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. Unbelievers are unclean, but Paul calls your children clean. In John 15, Jesus says that the vine and his disciples are the branches, that he is the vine and his disciples are the branches, and he says that the branches are clean. He also states that any branch in him that does not bear fruit will be cut off and thrown into the fire. Titus 2, Paul says that Jesus Christ gives himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And it is Christ that purifies us. He makes us clean to be a people for his own possession. Ephesians 5, Paul tells us that Christ gave his life for the church to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. Holy and clean just like our children, and they're also washed. The outward sign of the washing of baptism is indeed meant to signify being clean. As Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In Acts 11, when Paul has the scales fall from his eyes, he is told to get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins. In God's story, baptism is clearly a sign of washing and being cleansed. It is an outward sign that signifies an inward reality of belonging to God and our union with Christ. Given that God cares for his people and their children, it is no wonder that the children he calls clean should receive the sign of this washing. We know in God's story that God commanded the children of Abraham and his descendants to receive the covenant sign of their time, which was circumcision. And we know that in the time after the coming of the Messiah that the sign of the new covenant is baptism. We are also told by the Apostle Paul that these two signs are inextricably linked. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul here says that the deeper meaning of circumcision, as was represented by the physical sign, given to believers and their children is applied to New Testament believers by virtue of their bapt baptism. However you interpret baptism in this text is a physical water or what the sign signifies is irrelevant to the connection being made. Having, uh, Paul says that the uh, Christian is circumcised. How or when did this happen? Having been buried with him in baptism. The sign of circumcision was given both to adult converts and their children. Therefore the children of New Testament cr Christians being holy recipients of God covenant, God's covenant promises should likewise receive the sign of the new covenant that signifies that they are clean. This is regardless of a profession of faith, just as uh, it was with the sign of circumcision. For these reasons and more, I deny that a profession of faith must precede the baptism of a covenant child. God did not withhold the sign from our forefathers' children, and we have no right to hinder them from receiving it today. Uh, I got a minute left, but I'll go ahead and uh, concede it. Good opening statements. Let me uh, let me say a word before we get to our time of rebuttals for those who may not be used to uh, debates. You have these opening statements in which both men have prepared them separately from each other, not knowing where the arguments are gone to. And it's very tempting if you're the second guy to uh, immediately begin into the rebuttal 
rather than giving your prepared opening statement. But uh, this is how debates are designed. And so if you're listening, um, now you're going to see them switch over to really engaging in each other's arguments uh, for their times of rebuttal. So that will start with Tanner, who will get 10 minutes of rebuttal time. And um, let me get our timer set up for that. All right, uh, Tanner, when you are ready, uh, you, I mean, when you see the timer start, then you're ready to go. So as I mentioned in my opening statement, um, it seems more, it, it seems like uh, Zach may have been a little confused on the uh, the topic of the debate and that we're not debating whether our children are in the covenant, but whether or not baptism proceeds um, or can proceed faith, can proceed um, a, uh, a uh, profession of faith. So, um, but to deal with some of what, uh, what was brought up, um, the, according to the New Testament, we are the covenant children. He used this statement many, several times, um, but we are the covenant children of God. Um, it says in Galatians 3.29, And if you are Christ's, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So if we are in Christ... If, then we are the heirs of the promise. We are the covenant children of God. And so Romans 9, 8 says um, that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And so when we use the term covenant children, we need to recognize that it is um, there were promises given in the old covenant that in the new covenant are um, you know physical promises given that and, and, a, and a physical line continued for the purpose of bringing the Messiah through, the, through God's people um, that, is, that is abrogated, that is not applied to us. And so when we read in the New Testament, which explains the old for us, that those who are in Christ are Abraham's offspring. Those are the covenant children of God, we, as we just read in Romans, that um, it's not, I mean, Paul says explicitly, it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. And so when we call our children the, um, you know, the covenant children or, or, or use that terminology, we need to recognize that that is in um, opposition to the New Testament language when Paul is explaining these things. Um, you know, he went into great depth talking about children being holy and, 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 and in 1 Corinthians uh, 7. And so let me read that in, in context. Uh, Paul is is writing and answering questions that the Corinthians have had about marriage and and all of these things, and he says, "But to the married, but to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband." And when he says, "Not I, but the Lord," he's talking about Christ has spoken to this expressly. He's not saying that what I'm about to say is is, is doesn't matter, isn't inspired, but he's saying that the Lord spoke to this directly. Verse 11, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. So what we have here is the Corinthians are asking a lot of questions because the Corinthians, Corinth would have been um, a really dark place with all the pagan temples. And 
you have a lot of men now accepting the faith whose wives have not and vice versa. You have a lot of wives accepting the faith and their husbands are still pagans. Um, and so they're wanting to know, what does that mean for me and my, should I divorce my husband because he is not a follower of Yahweh? Should I divorce my husband because he is not a believer in Jesus Christ? And what does it mean for my children? And Paul is saying, no, you stay married to them if they will uh, consent to be married with you. And because of that, your children are legitimate. Your children are not bastards because you um, are married to a pagan. The children that you have with an unbeliever, they are legitimate, okay? Um, the, the, the 1689 in the chapter of marriage, I just did my brother's marriage this last weekend and, um, and, and read from that chapter. And, and at the point where it talks about legitimate children or a legitimate issue from marriage, um, this is the verse cited. Because this is what Paul's talking about. This is in the context of familial relationship. And so that is what Paul is talking about. When he says your children are holy, he's saying they're legitimate. Your children are not bastards because you're married to a pagan who blasphemes God and whatnot. So that's the point Paul is making there. Um, let's see. Of course, our, our brother stated multiple times God does not change. Of course God does not change. No one is stating that God changes. But God has said that I'm going to do something new. I'm going to do, make a new covenant with you. So in Jeremiah 31, we have this statement of God making a new covenant. Um, and I think I've got time. I'll just read it. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, or Yahweh, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more." And so we have in Hebrews 8, uh, 7 through 8, it says this, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And he goes on to quote the passage from Jeremiah. And at the end of Hebrews 8, in verse 13, he says this, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so Paul is making this argument from Jeremiah 31 in, in Hebrews 8 that the old covenant is passing away, it is becoming obsolete, and the new covenant has come in Christ. And so um, we, um, no one is arguing that God changes. No one is arguing that God's nature changes. And we're not, we're not dispensational, right? God did not... Um, try something with the Jews and well that didn't work out so now he has to try something with the Gentiles that none of us we would not we would not say that uh, we would we would argue that that's ridiculous that God has a covenant but that God has done something new in the new covenant that it is new it's not it, it is different and so that would be the argument not that God changes um and still, in Jack, in, in, in excuse me, in Zach's opening, um, 
I'm still not hearing why we can baptize, why we have grounds to baptize those who have not made a profession of faith. The New Testament is clear, and he said that, that it doesn't show that, but I showed very clearly from a myriad of verses that baptism and profession of faith and confession and repentance is a package deal, that you can't separate them. There is no example in the New Testament of baptism apart from profession of faith. The best you have is, is, is an argument from silence, but I don't have an argument from silence. I have all of the examples. And so our Presbyterian brothers have to point to one place with Lydia and say, well, see, maybe there was a baby there. And that's what they've got. And that's, that's pretty pathetic. Like, the, like, is there anywhere that you can show me in the New Testament where b baptism expressly is done without, it, it, like where we can see it done or talked about or anything without a profession of faith, without, a, a, you know, a, a confession and repentance and belief? No. There's nowhere. Every example we have that, that we can look at and say, this is what happened. There is profession of faith. There is belief. And then there's baptism. Every time. You, Ethiopian eunuch, it, it doesn't matter. And, and, I, and, and so, anyway, that, that's, it's mind-boggling to me that, that Zach can say that that, that doesn't prove anything. Um, the one other point would be that, it, you know, that our children are blessed. Um, you know, believing that the children of believers are blessed. Well, of course they are. I believe this. My children are blessed, absolutely. They are blessed by having a father who fears God, by being raised in a home where the gospel is taught continually. My children are not pagans. They're not. Because my children are raised in a God-honoring home. And so there is not this idea of, you know, well, I'm just me and my wife and a bunch of pagans. And I recognize that there's some Baptists who have argued like that. And, and, and that's, that, I, I, would not, I would not argue that. But my children are blessed. And the children of believers are blessed. But they are not blessed in the, in, in, by saying that they're saved. That's when he kept saying that, you know, they're washed, they're this, that, and the other. We don't believe our children are regenerate. I don't believe y'all believe your children are regenerate when they're born. They haven't been washed of their sins. They haven't been cleansed. They haven't been saved. So, my time's up. All right. Well, thank you for that. Uh, that rebuttal. It is uh, uh, now uh, Zach's turn for 10 minutes. And, Zach, uh, you're ready to go when uh, you see the countdown start. All right. Here we go. So, uh, in Tanner's uh, opening statement, he brought up lots of examples of adults uh, showing a uh, profession of repentance, and it precedes baptism. I have no debate with that whatsoever. Adult converts should uh, receive baptism upon professing their faith. We don't go around uh, baptizing people uh, off the street. That, that's not the New Testament practice. But the question then becomes, what does this baptized person do with their children? How are they supposed to look at their children? And when should they be baptized? Now, we do not have a New Testament model that matches what uh, the Credo Baptists do in their churches either. We do not have an example of someone growing up in the church 
and then having their profession approved by elders or the preacher or whoever, and then receiving the sign of baptism. There, there's no example of that. But we do have the testimony of all of Scripture, and he brought up lots of the household passages. I appreciate that. I didn't make my argument from the household passages, but uh, the household passages are consistent with our view that God blesses the households, the children, of his covenant people. Tanner uh, made mention that this is not a debate about if our children are in the covenant. Well, uh, I'll get a chance to ask him if his children are in the covenant, and if not, uh, uh, why does the Bible say the things that it says about them? And if they are, why do they not receive the sign of the covenant? What is baptism? What is it? It is a sign. It points us towards a deeper reality. But the deeper reality is something that is promised to our children. Tanner says that it's not the children of the flesh. That's Paul arguing that it's not uh, physical ethnic Israel uh, that, that are the receivers of the promises, but it's those with faith. I agree with that. But then the question is, what about their children? And all through both the Old and the New Testament, the promise is for our children. And not only our children, but our children's children to a thousand generations. God blesses generationally, and it isn't just a, a, a blessing, uh, someone sneezes, God bless you. It isn't a financial blessing. Th this is God setting apart a people for his own possession, and baptism uh, is a way of signifying that, just like circumcision was. Abraham was a man of faith. He uh, placed his faith in God. He was given the sign of circumcision after he had faith, right? But then he is told to circumcise his children. And Paul makes the link between circumcision and baptism in Colossians 2. Um, Tanner brought up that uh, passage in 1 Corinthians 7 where the children are called clean and holy. And he says that this, is, uh, this just means that the, the marriage and the child are legitimate. They're uh, legitimate. I'm not sure why Paul doesn't just explain that he means the children are legitimate. Why does he use the language of holy and clean? Th those are covenantal terms. If he was just arguing that uh, you, sh you shouldn't divorce your spouse because your marriage is still legitimate, why does he use the same language that he uses else elsewhere to describe Christians in the church, those who are united with Christ, those that receive the blessings of his covenant? Uh, what does he compare being uh, clean and unclean to? Being a believer or being an unbeliever? Uh, uh, Tanner said, uh, and I'm glad he did, that he, he doesn't treat his children like pagans. Right? Okay. How do, we, how do we treat covenant people? What do they get? They get the sign of the covenant. And the sign of that covenant is baptism. Uh, he brought up uh, Hebrews, quoting Jeremiah, and I'm glad he did. Uh, he said that uh, there is something new about the new covenant. I completely agree. There is something new about it. What is the context of Hebrews chapter 8? Well, from Hebrews chapter 3 all the way through Hebrews chapter 10, Paul, uh, Paul excuse me, the apostle, whoever wrote it, is discussing the Levitical priesthood ending because Christ is the uh, new mediator. He replaces the Levitical priesthood. 
and the author of Hebrews quotes from Jeremiah uh, in order to support his argument. And so what, what it is, is that uh, their, their sins are forgiven, right? Are sins forgiven in the Old Covenant? Yes, they are. Are laws written on people's hearts in the Old Covenant? Yes, they are. Psalm 48, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. It says that a God will be their God and they will be his people. Is this new? That's not new. I already quoted verses to that effect earlier. What is new? They shall not teach one another to know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that every single person in the new covenant is of the elect? Tanner didn't say what he thinks about that either way. I would say there are plenty of places in Scripture, the warning passages prove they are not. So what is this newness of the new covenant? What becomes obsolete? What is the subject of the book of Hebrews? It is the Levitical priesthood becoming obsolete and passing away. What does God say about the Levites? God says that they are set apart. It is the covenant of Levi. Uh, Nehemiah 13, remember them, oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood of the Levites. What was the job of the Levites? Malachi chapter 2. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you and that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave him to them, uh, I gave them to him as an object of reference. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction is in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not to be found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth. He is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. The Levitical priesthood was one that taught the people. And the ceremonial laws, Paul says, was a tutor to point us towards Christ. It was designed to pass away. It was designed to teach them that the forgiveness of sins did not come from sacrificing animals. That's why they had to do it all the time. And the priests had to make a sacrifice for themselves also. But Christ comes, and he doesn't have to make a sacrifice for himself. He is the sacrifice, and he doesn't have to do it again because the sacrifice is final. That is why the author of Hebrews quotes the passage from Jeremiah. Uh, nowhere in the book of Hebrews or the book of Jeremiah does it remove children from the covenant. Nothing new about the new covenant makes our children not a part of it. God's promises are for you and for your children. So the, the argument from the book of Hebrews that uh, the new covenant somehow alters uh, the inclusion of our children, it just isn't there. It, it, it's eisegesis, and uh, there's nowhere else in Scripture that would teach us that. What we do know is that the new covenant in union with Christ also does not define whether or not someone is elect or regenerate. Jesus says in John 15 that he's the vine, they are the branches, the branches are clean, but there are some branches in him that can be cut off and cast into the fire. Paul tells us in Romans 11 that the olive tree of God's covenant, the branches can be uh, removed, grafted in, and then removed again. 
that these this is the covenant reality that we still live in. This is the New Testament. And I'm not just reading uh, the Old Testament into the New or vice versa. I want to be a, a whole Bible Christian. A whole Bible. The book of Acts is good. It teaches us a lot about the early church, the growth uh, from uh, just Jews uh, to the, uh, the Gentiles and going out in, into all the earth and how uh, new believers should receive the sign of baptism after they profess. But then what about their families and the generations? Uh, baptism is for Christians. It's the sign of the new covenant. And our children are included in God's household. That's why uh, the Bible is, has specific instructions for them. It says that they are holy and set apart. They're sanctified. They're clean. And because they are clean and sanctified, uh, they should receive that sign. And that's all. All right, brothers. Thank you for that. We've had uh, two, uh, two times now of uh, rebuttal. And now we're moving on to what's called our cross-examination time. And what is going to happen here is each, uh, each man is going to get five minutes uh, to ask the other man questions. And so this will go quick, but uh, we're going to keep it to asking a question. So the person that's going to ask the question, that's what you're doing. Uh, try to make your questions like the, the whole time. We want to get as much as we can back and forth. And I'll probably be a little flexible on the time here uh, uh, as we go. But Zach, you'll get five minutes to ask. Tanner, and then Tanner will get five minutes to ask you, and then uh, you'll get five more minutes to ask Tanner and five more. So if you need to continue some of that questioning to your next time, that's, uh, that's okay. So um, we'll go ahead and have you start, Zach, and then as soon as you ask your first question, I'll hit the timer. You're muted. All right. I'm not muted, am I? Go ahead. No, Tanner is, uh, sorry, Zach is muted. Is that, I'm not there you muted. Are, Zach. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Tanner, is baptism in the New Testament a symbol of being clean? It's a symbol of having been cleansed, yeah. Okay. Are the children of New Covenant believers clean? I guess it would depend on what you meant by clean. I don't really know how to answer that. It, when it you will, say clean. Well, well, Paul says that they're, they're sanctified and they're not unclean. They're, they're set apart, they're holy, and they're not unclean. And I asked you if baptism is a symbol of being clean. In order to be clean, you'd have to be cleansed or washed. Are your children clean? Well, obviously, as I've already stated, I believe that that passage is talking about legitimacy. So, yeah, the, I would. they're not bastards, yeah. So they're clean in that way. They are legitimate children in the context there of 1 Corinthians. So there again, I'd have to ask you anywhere, what you're saying unclean. I mean, what you're, how is, you're defining is there, clean. Uh, okay, well, I, let me ask you, uh, is there anywhere else in the New Testament, Old, anywhere, or do you have any source that uh, the word holy or the word clean simply refers to something being legally legitimate? 
I believe there are. I don't have them in front of me. I I, I, I don't have them off the top of my head. Okay. I mean, a lot of times it means uh, set apart. Are right set apart. Uh, I'll move on. Um, are our children members of the new covenant? Can you rephrase that? Are all children? What was your question? No, are, question are believers, believers' children. Are, are believers' children uh, members of the new covenant? I don't know. Many, yes. But it's if not, it's not a birthright. They're not born. They can be. They could be born into the new covenant, but but not necessarily. Not necessarily, because me and you would define the new covenant differently. So I would say, you know, that those who are only those who are regenerate, only those who are in Christ are in the new covenant. But obviously, I believe that infants can be regenerate. I obviously believe that uh, children can be regenerate in the womb. They can be in the new covenant. Absolutely. We just don't know that. So therefore, we don't have. Uh, yeah. So the new covenant is comprised of only the elect. I don't know. I don't have regeneration goggles. So all I've got is profession of faith. That's what the scriptures give me. So that's what I use. So when someone makes a profession of faith, uh, you decide if you believe that they're regenerate. I decide... I wouldn't say that. Yes, yeah, someone makes a profession of faith. Yeah, if someone makes a profession of faith, and there are, you know, there's there's fruit recognition that there's repentance, and and they are professing faith, and they're not professing heresy. Then yes, I, I would I would baptize them. I'm not a um, I would not argue with Dever or some of these Baptists, hyper Baptists that want to wait till they're adults or some foolishness. So I'll make sure, you know, I'm not arguing for that. But you have to decide if you think the uh, profession is credible. No, I mean, it would have to be a, a correct, I mean, credible, yeah, it would have to be a credible profession, the same way that I'm not going to baptize a Mormon who comes in and says, I believe in Jesus. Well, that's not enough. Just saying you believe in Jesus, well, you're believing in a false Jesus, a false Christ, false Messiah. That's not a confession of faith. And so there has to be some level of um, rec you know, recognizing it as a correct profession, as a legitimate profession of faith. So there has to be some level of critique. I, I, I think that that seems obvious to me. Okay. Uh, are are uh, Christians members of the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants? All, are you saying are all Christians? Yeah. No, I would not say so, no. Uh, that's my time. All right. Are you guys able to hear each other well? Yes, I think so. Okay, just making sure as yeah. we, we do this. All right, well, uh, go ahead and ask your first question, Tanner, and then I'll hit the, the, the timer as soon as you ask your first question. All right, Zach, are, are there any um, New Testament examples that you can point to where someone is baptized without a profession of faith? 
In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, Paul says that the entire nation of Israel was baptized. So they're, would they're you say that that's infants? So you would you would say that that's identical to New Testament baptism? I would say that Paul is drawing the comparison between the nation of Israel and how they were baptized, they had spiritual food, and they drank of the rock, which is Christ. And then he gives the warning to the New Testament Christians that uh, they likewise, it was written as an example for them, they likewise could fall. So I think Paul draws a comparison uh, between uh, the Christian being baptized and having spiritual food and drinking of Christ and also being able to fall away because of unbelief. So you're saying that Paul pointing to what happened in the Exodus is an example of New Testament baptism. I'm saying Paul draws the comparison of the Israelites going through the Red Sea with New Testament baptism. He makes the comparison, yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, would that be the only example? Uh, well, you know, we don't know if the if there were people baptized in the household of Lydia, who's not the only household baptism that doesn't mention profession, uh, the household of Stephanus also has mentioned uh, that it was baptized with without uh, explicit profession of faith from the members of the household. Okay. All right. So one question I had for you, Zach, would um, w would you say that someone who has never professed faith can be an apostate? And I'm not trying to uh, dodge your question. I'm just no, curious. No, that's fine. I would uh, just off the top of my head, I would say no. You you have to apostatize from something. So, so to continue that question on, you know, a child is baptized in a Presbyterian home. Let's say, for example, the mother and father then divorce. The mother remarries. She has custody. The child's raised in a pagan home, but he was baptized in a believing church. He grows up and he denies the faith without ever having professed the faith, is he an apostate? Yes, I would say so. Okay. Interesting. All right. Um, another question would be, are your children or my children, are they in Adam or in Christ? Uh, my children are covenantally in union with Christ. Um, so your, your children are covenantally in Christ, so they have put on Christ in, to you, so, let's see, is it Galatians or... So Galatians 3, 26 to 27 says, For all in Christ Jesus, uh, let's see, For in Christ Jesus you all are sons of God through faith, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So you would argue that your children have put on Christ. Yes. Okay, so that through baptism, so do you believe that baptism is the means of them putting on Christ? No, it's God's promise to my children. So you're, you're saying that your children are in Christ at the moment of conception? Yes. 
Okay. <laughs> so then, do your children, um, like, is there still a need to confess, repent of sin and put their trust in Christ? Or is it already taken care of? No, absolutely. Just like there are people covenantally connected with Christ in the church that still have to repent and confess and uh, they have to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, so I think, uh, okay, fascinating. Um, all right, um, let me see what other question I have here. Um, though I know what it was, when you said earlier that your children are, I may have to let this go on to the next time. Yep, I'm going to seed, seed my 10 seconds, and I'll, I'll get that in a minute. All right. All right, Zach, uh, you're going to have uh, five more minutes. Uh, if you get down there and you still got time left and you think your question, as long as you get your question in before the timer's done, we'll let it keep going from, for the next time. Okay, Tanner? Okay, thanks. So, yeah, uh, but... Uh, all right, Zach, you get five more, questions, uh, five more minutes, and as soon as you ask your question, I'll start the timer. So earlier uh, I asked if uh, Christians were members of the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants, and you, your answer was no? Correct. So uh, what do you make of the statements in the New Testament that uh, all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ and that we are heirs to the covenants of the promise. Paul says that uh, we are heirs to the covenants of the promise. So if we inherit these covenants, uh, how are we not in them? Well, those covenants were pointing to the covenant, what I would call the covenant of grace. Obviously, the Bible doesn't call it that, but the the covenant of grace. I think you would use the same language, Zach, in calling it the covenant of grace. Um, correct me if I'm wrong there, but so I would say that the Abrahamic, the the Noahic, the uh, Mosaic covenant, they pointed to and led to the covenant of grace. Um, and so, but there is a distinction. So I would not say that those who were believers before the Abrahamic covenant, were they in the Abrahamic covenant? You know, the, were the, those who believed the Abrahamic covenant, were they in the Mosaic covenant? And so I don't think it's correct to say that all Christians were in all of those covenants. Um, those pointed to the covenant of grace, obviously, and the covenant of grace is the only covenant by which anyone is saved. I think you would agree with, y'all would agree with that, that no one's saved by, um, uh, uh, you know, anything outside of the covenant of grace in Christ, what Christ has done. So the Abrahamic covenant pointed to Christ, and that's how Abraham was saved by faith. Um, yeah. So when the Bible calls these covenants everlasting, and uh, they, are, they are for generations, uh, did they cease, or are there other people in them but Christians aren't? No, as, as, as Paul, or I would argue Paul in Hebrew, says that the Old Covenant is, um, um, oh, the, what, what was the word he used? Um, 
abrogated or passing away. Yeah, obsolete. It's passing away. Um, and so there was a they they obviously pointed to and led to the the new covenant, which obviously is eternal. And so there's an aspect of the covenant of grace being eternal, and God weaving it all through history and through the Abrahamic and the Noahic and the Mosaic covenant. Um, and so, yeah, God's covenant is everlasting, obviously, but I would not say that the um, the Mosaic covenant, for example, is everlasting in the same way that it was uh, in, in its form, in, in, in its original form or whatnot. In, in its outward administration, do you think that's fair? That, that's probably, yeah, that's probably a better way to say it. But the substance continues. We are heirs of, of those promises. We, we, are, we are heirs to the covenants of the promise, right? We are heirs of Abraham through faith. Through okay, through faith. Uh, the, these covenants they did include promises for the children of their members, right? Um. Yes. That's not a trick question. <laughs> no, yeah, no, the new covenant. Think, yeah, no, yeah. yeah, I was going to ask the, the uh, question. I don't know what promises you're talking about, but yes, they are. They did include promises for children. Yes. Well, uh, Paul in Ephesians two says that the Gentiles were once strangers to the covenants of the promise, but now they're brought near. They're they're brought into Israel. They weren't citizens of Israel. Now they are. That's that's Paul's language. The covenants of the promise, which I would say are the administrations of the covenant of grace, is kind of how we use that language. But it, it's not my time to answer questions. Uh, what uh, What is the first instance of New Testament baptism? Um, is it Acts two, Pentecost? No, it'd be of New Testament. It'd be Mark or Matthew. The the Mark, depending on. I mean, obviously, if we believe Mark was written first, I think Mark one thirty four. Um. So before Christ's death, you could be united with him in, in baptism? Well, the, the, the baptism of John, which is what I'm referring to in Mark uh, 134, I believe, is pointing to the Messiah. It was a baptism of repentance pointing to the Messiah. That was John's role, to be a forerunner to Christ and to point to him. And so it, it, there was obviously a distinction between that and being baptized in the name of Christ recognizing who the actual Messiah is, but John was pointing to him. So it, it was it was still pointing to the Messiah to come. Okay, that's my time. All right, Tanner, go ahead and ask your question, and then I'll uh, start the timer. Zach, do you believe that your children or the children of believers are when they are, do you believe they are regenerate when they're conceived? They may or may not be, but I, I do not equate uh, covenantal membership with regeneration. Okay. Um, I, I would agree that we don't know as far as the regeneration. Um, so when you're saying that our children are clean, are you saying that they don't have original sin? No, I'm not saying that they don't have original sin. Uh, what I'm saying is that they are covenantally clean they are set apart just like members of all the various administrations of the old covenant uh, still had a, a sin nature but they are declared righteous in God's covenant um, 
That, that's my answer. You believe your children are righteous? I believe that if they uh, remain in the new covenant, that uh, they will be uh, saved. That, that means that they are regenerate. Uh, the Bible uses words like that to, to describe uh, members of the community. But you members of the church. So you're saying that... Yes, they have to have faith to be regenerate. I mean, that's not a question. I, I agree. <laughs> um, so, so when you say that, um, that your children are um, in Christ in the womb, when you're saying that your children are cleansed, when you're saying that your children are... Um, in the in the in the new covenant even within the womb are you saying that that there is a um not just positional difference in your children but are you saying that there is there is work that has already been done in them as far as you know we we we're we're all calvinists we ephesians 2 we were all children of wrath like the rest of mankind we believe in original sin we recognize that are you saying that your children are distinct in that way or just positionally? They are distinct in the sense that they are set apart from the world. They are members of the church, which is Christ's body. And uh, just like Israel was God's chosen people and they were set apart for a specific purpose, uh, did not mean that they were all elect. Not all Israel is Israel. And uh, my children are members of Christ's body in the church. Yes, I believe that. But that does not necessarily mean that they are uh, of the elect. Yeah. So you would say that the invisible church, you would not say call the invisible church the... Um, you would not equate that as being in the covenant, in the new covenant. Correct. I need to re-ask that. That that's not very clear. You're so you're 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 defining, are are, are you defining, the um, the new covenant? I don't know how to phrase this. Um, because what my question, what I'm trying to get at is, it seems to me, and or it is that you and I are defining invisible church, covenant community. We're defining some of these things differently, and I think that's where we're maybe tripping up, talking past each other. You, would you say that? Um, um, would you say that there is a visible and invisible church? Yes, and the way that uh, those phrases are used in the confessions, I agree with that. Okay, so would you say that um, the invisible church are those who are in Christ, or would you say that all in the visible church are in Christ? I would say that the invisible church is comprised of the elect, and the uh, visible church are also members of Christ's body externally. And just as he says in John 15, uh, those members can be removed and thrown into the fire if they do not produce fruit. Okay. I think that's all I got.
All right. All right, now, well, now we're going to move on to our closing statements. Uh, thank you guys so far. You've been doing well. Um, I know this is uh, can be nerve-wracking. And, uh, uh, again, both of you are laymen in the sense of your, your, your vocationals. Uh, 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 you're not full-time ministers. And so uh, this is an example and encouragement for our, our, our listeners or whoever's watching to get in and dig in and do hard work of studying the Word. These men have shown uh, good uh, uh, knowledge and being able to work with the Scriptures, and, and, and so I would encourage you to follow in that example. But now we have closing statements. Uh, Zach Jackson gets to go first, and because Tanner took the affirmative, we'll give him the last word in uh, defending the uh, the question. So, Tanner, um, I will start the counter soon as you start. Not tar- not Tanner. Sorry, Zach. All right. This is the hard part. We gotta end it, and I gotta win, right? Uh, so what we've seen today, you know, we've kind of rehearsed some of the. Uh, arguments of the past. We're, we, we didn't come in at the beginning of something. We're, we're still in the middle of a, a conversation between uh, Credo-Baptist and Pado-Baptist. Um, there is some back, talking back and forth. There's some uh, use of words where, that we define differently. So I would hope that uh, over time, conversations like this would help us to uh, understand what each other mean more so that we can uh, sharpen each other. Um, Tanner started off with the examples of uh, adult baptisms in the New Testament as proof that confession must precede uh, baptism. Uh, those, are, those are examples of adults. Uh, the question that I have presented is what do we do with our children? Throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament, God makes promises to the children of believers. Um, he makes uh promises. He saves Noah's family, uh, baptizing them in the flood. He makes a promise to Abraham for his descendants, despite his descendants having no faith uh, professed. They received the sign of the covenant circumcision, which Paul links to baptism in Colossians chapter 2. We have the promises of all the covenants which uh, do predict, as uh, Tanner put, they look forward to Christ, but they they are not all annulled in Christ. To take uh, Hebrews chapter 8 and the quotation from Jeremiah 31 to mean that every aspect of all of the uh, covenant uh, administrations in the Old Covenant are now obsolete and passing away is to create all kinds of contradictions with what the New Testament says says elsewhere and it also just doesn't make sense in the context of Hebrews chapter 8 to begin with. Um, Hebrews chapter 8 is used to define the new covenant as comprised of the elect only or uh, being the invisible church only is how it's put. But I would argue that that's not a necessary conclusion of reading the passage uh, for Everyone to know me from the least to the greatest 
is uh, not necessarily to say everyone has uh, salvific knowledge of God. The least to the greatest is a term that is used to describe classes of people in the New Testament. It is uh, not always used, and in fact I would argue that it is never used to describe uh, every single individual being discussed, but it's the class of people and specifically, in this instance, it would be the class of people uh, of the priests. And the priesthood is what is in discussion. And uh, the priesthood is insufficient in the sense that it has to continue. The priests have to make sacrifices for themselves. And they have to do it year, year in and year out. But Christ does it once for all. So he replaces the Levitical priesthood. And therefore, the New Testament Christians are not to go back because all that will await them is fiery judgment. And uh, that's exactly what happened in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. Um, what we do have also in the book of Hebrews, though, in chapter 10, is uh, a warning passage. A warning passage written to the... Uh, People in the New Testament church. Sorry, I've lost my uh, my page of notes here. Hebrews chapter ten. Still discussing the priesthood, how the priests have to administer day and night, but Christ sits down. He says, therefore, so because of this, Christ is a, is a better priest. He makes a sacrifice once for all. It says, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart, assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of Sorry, of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together is the habit of son but encouraging one another all the more for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving a knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume all of God's adversaries Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without uh, mercy. The testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer the punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? So we have a warning here in the book of Hebrews that someone can go on sinning after having received uh, knowledge of the truth and they can trample underfoot the Son of God and regard as unclean the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified. Now, if the new covenant is comprised of only the elect, as supposedly Hebrews teaches in chapter 8, how can the author say that there are those sanctified by the blood of that covenant, and then they can fall away, and all that awaits them is judgment? There are many warning passages in the New Testament to this effect. I do not have time to rehearse them all, but... Uh, Maybe we'll have some time after that. 
Um, the burden of proof on my opponent today was to prove that baptism is only for those that have professed faith in Christ. Unfortunately for him, he has been unable to do so and indeed could not possibly do so. There is no direct commandment in Scripture to support this thesis and is inconsistent with what we know the Scriptures say about the nature of God's covenant and the sign of that covenant and the promises made to our children. In this debate, two perspectives have been presented, not only on who should receive the sign of baptism, but also really who is in the new covenant. I have presented multiple lines of evidence that the New Testament teaches that our children are indeed included in God's covenant with all his church. The inclusion of our children and their receiving the sign of this inclusion does not guarantee that they are among the elect. Covenant membership is never guaranteed this unless it is united with faith and perseverance. The new covenant, like all of what Paul calls the covenants of the promise, is comprised of believers and their children. It is also the elect and non-elect. This view of God's covenant does not undervalue faith, repentance, and believing. On the contrary, we must have faith and we must believe. We should have so much faith that we actually believe what God has promised our children. What he has said, they are clean, they are holy, the promises are for them, and they are in the Lord. The Baptistic claim that they give the sign of baptism upon a credible profession of faith is unbiblical and not truly possible. On the contrary, what the Baptist is actually doing is placing the onus of the of who receives the sign of baptism on the one that gives the sign. Does the preacher believe that the professing believer actually believes? Well, be baptized in them. Baptism then is not performed on the basis of the belief of the one uh, being baptized, but on the baptizer. But I have argued that we should baptize on the promises of God, what God says, not what we believe about ourselves or others but what God says about them. Baptistic blank slate equalism is a rejection of the covenantal and generational promises of God. It is a tradition of men, and it must be rejected. I'm losing my place. Men are often incapable of living up to their principles, and in this case, Baptists are better when they don't. Many are great and godly men and women that raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. They may withhold the sign of God's covenant from their children, but they do raise and instruct them in the obedience of faith. And this is a happy inconsistency. There are unhappy inconsistencies, though, when the children of believers are expected to uh, fall into sin and then have great emotional displays of repentance. And this is too often what we see. And it is also... Uh, unbiblical and inconsistent for paedo-baptists to treat their children even though they are baptized as if they do not need faith and repentance uh, I'm kind of lost my place I'm out of time I'm just gonna end it right here alright thank you brother uh, we are now ready for Tanner to give his final statement so Tanner as soon as you start I'll hit the 10 I'll hit the counter alright thank you Joseph uh, thank you Zach Appreciate you, brother. Um, and I am um, grateful for you, grateful for your desire to be consistent, grateful for your desire to be faithful to Scripture. And I believe that's what you men are doing. I believe y'all are genuine um, in this. <laughs> Just genuinely wrong. Um, so, Zach has argued 
from the old covenant promises to the new covenant promises, which is what I predicted that he would do, because that's frankly all that all that Presbyterians have. As I pointed out earlier, we have multiple of the multiple, um, I, I believe, five examples of household baptisms. Uh, three give it show explicitly um, that there was faith before baptism, that there was whole house belief before there was whole house baptism. And so why we think that we can take the two examples um, that are left, that are remaining, and argue from silence on those is incredibly weak. My opponent um, had one one place in 1 Corinthians um, where Paul points back to the Exodus and calls that baptism and argues that that is a New Testament example of baptism. Um and I'm going to argue that that's incredibly weak. There's you've got that, and you've got two arguments from silence from the household baptisms, and that is not sufficient argument to build a case on for anything. And whereas we have multiple examples in the Gospels, in Acts, in um, uh, in the um, in the epistles of not only the narrative of what did happen, but also when Paul and Peter go to explain baptism and what it is, they always connect it to faith and repentance. And so not only do we see it in the narrative, but we see Paul making his arguments about baptism and basing it upon profession of faith. We see Peter pointing to the appeal that is made to God for a good conscience. We see um, the writers of the New Testament arguing for a baptism that is, that is connected to faith. And so um, I would argue that, that uh, my opponent has mainly argued that our children are in the new covenant, that that has been the argument tonight, more so than the thesis, which was that um, profession of faith must precede baptism. And so I think it's clear from the New Testament that uh, profession of faith can't precede baptism. Uh, I said that backwards, that uh, baptism cannot be without profession of faith, um, um, that you cannot have baptism uh, not be preceded by faith, is what, is what I meant to say there. Um, Zach is arguing that it's possible to baptize based on something other than faith, and I'm sure that he would, he would disagree with that and say that it's the parent's faith, but it's still something other than the individual's faith. And so while me and him both agree that, that our children can be regenerate, I absolutely believe that. We have biblical precedent for that. And our confessions both teach that God can save our children in the womb and can regenerate those children, uh, those babies. Um, that does not, as, as, a, as a New Covenant believer, as a pastor of a church, I do not have biblical grounds to baptize my children because baptism does, is not, does not equate to circumcision in the Old Covenant. And, we, and, and, and I believe I showed that in, in my opening statement, that circumcision and baptism are different. They're not the same thing. Circumcision doesn't become baptism. Circumcision in the Old Covenant of the flesh becomes circumcision of the heart in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. We see that, that when, um, when Paul is pointing to that in Colossians, the recognition of uh, a circumcision with hands, that now the circumcision that... Um, 
that he is talking about and pointing to is that which is done without hands. That is the inward circumcision of the heart, which of course, as, uh, as Zach pointed out, happened in the Old Testament, but it happened based upon what Christ had done. So it's all based upon the new covenant. No one is saved apart from that. And so um, I am arguing that circumcision in the New Testament becomes circumcision in the circumcision in the Old in the Old Covenant becomes regeneration, becomes circumcision of the heart in the New Covenant. And that baptism in the Old Covenant, where you see Moses and them going through the, you know, the examples and the different things, is that that transitions to baptism in the New Covenant. So that it's not circumcision, the sign that is put upon the, only on the males, but upon the house of Israel becomes baptism. I don't, I'm not arguing that. And so, but for both, we see that there is an inherent difference in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And in the New Covenant, from the first time that baptism shows up all the way through the epistles, it is equated to faith. It is not equated to, it is linked to faith. So that you cannot, you cannot um, exclude faith from baptism. Okay, And so, I believe that my Presbyterian brothers robbed their children of the ability to profess faith before men in baptism. I believe that my Presbyterian brothers uh, rob their children of the ability to remember their baptism, to look back at their baptism. When they profess faith before men, when they profess Christ before men, and um, I believe that's a travesty. I believe it's, I believe it's sad. I believe that there is... Um, um, I, 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 really, I, I really believe that it is... Um, um, a, a, I hate to say detriment. I don't want to say detriment because that may be going too far. But I remember my baptism very clearly, and it's an encouragement to me. And so, for I, I believe that they robbed their children of that that spiritual encouragement and blessing, um, being able to um, profess that before men, do that before men, based on their faith in Christ. That Zach has has agreed and admitted that they must have in order to, if they are regenerate, they will profess faith in Christ. And so. At that point, they should be baptized. Um, as I've shown, we see that what's happening in the New Covenant or in the New Testament is clearly something new and different. As we looked at um, immediately upon, you know, baptism immediately in Acts, we're seeing that it's men and women being baptized. It's obviously distinct from what was happening in the Old Covenant. Obviously. So they're not thinking it's identical. You know, the argument is, and I don't think I heard it tonight, but many times the argument from our Presbyterian brothers is that, well, they would just assume that their children got the, the sign of the new covenant. And the reality is, is that early on in Acts, they are seeing that it's distinct, that it's different, that that it, it's not just the, the men that receive the sign of the covenant, but it's the men, the women, the children all those who profess faith, everyone who professes faith, regardless of your ethnicity or your sex or your age, you profess faith and you receive the sign of the new covenant. And that's clear, I believe, for it, it immediately in the New Testament and in the, and in, um, the book of Acts. Also, my, my opponent has not shown that um, even if our children are in the new covenant, even if children of believers are in the new covenant, and I'm not arguing that, I'm not arguing that all children of believers are in the new covenant, but even if they were, that still does not, we do not have 
precedent from the New Testament to baptize them based upon that. So even if we can make that argument, even if my opponent can make the argument that our, that all of our children are in the covenant, then where still at that point, where do we have example or precedent from the New Testament to baptize them, to give them the sign of being in the New Covenant? We don't have that. Even if they are, we should still baptize upon their profession of faith. We should still give them the, the opportunity to profess Christ before men with their own mouth and to be baptized. Um, we should not steal that from our children. We shouldn't rob them of that. Uh, my, my, uh, Zach has argued that his children are clean um, and they are set apart and they are um, you know, in the new covenant and in Christ and, and have put on Christ and all these different things within the womb. Before baptism, he's not arguing that baptism does any of this. And so he is just doing it a few years before me and robbing his children of the, the opportunity to um, confess faith uh, in doing it and remembering it and being able to look to that and being and receiving that spiritual encouragement. And so I'm not arguing that um, my children are not going to be baptized um, or should have to be adults to be baptized or anything like that. My children, when they profess faith, will be baptized. Um, and so that is what I'm arguing is that from the New Testament that the only grounds that me as a minister of the Church of Christ has for baptizing someone is upon their profession of faith. Thank you. All right. Well, brothers, thank you very, very much for your 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 hard work. You both articulated uh, uh, your positions and uh, really appreciated uh, uh, the, the manner in which you carried yourselves. You made good arguments and forceful arguments for your positions. So now, listeners, uh, I hope you've been paying attention at home. Uh, you... Uh, one of the things that I take away from the debate are there are there are, there are questions still. I mean, we could have gone on like twice as long probably because there's still other questions and things coming up that would be uh, that would make for interesting uh, follow up for this. And so uh, before we go, if anyone had any time to follow up with uh, questions for you, where would they, they where would they reach you at? So uh, we'll start with you, Tanner. If somebody had some questions for you, how how could they get a hold of you? Uh, Facebook. I'm on Facebook, Tanner Cartwright. Um, I'm easily accessible there. I'm also, I've got on Twitter this last year. Um, I'm on there, Tannerite Cortez, at Tannerite Cortez. Um, you can find me there um, on Twitter as well. So one of those two places. I, I have an Instagram, but I hate Instagram and I never go there. So, uh, but Facebook or Twitter, either one would be fine. What about for you, Zach? Somebody has more questions they want to follow up with you. Where, where can they? Don't at you? me, bro. <laughs> uh, now, really, I uh, you can find me on Facebook, Zachariah Jackson. It's uh, Zachariah spelled with an E, Z-E-C-H-A-R-I-A-H. Uh, I, I may or may not respond. I'm pretty busy uh, with work and my children. But I do love this topic, so I might not be able to stay away from it. So you can Facebook me, or uh, you could come visit our, our church and talk to me afterwards, or come to one of our uh, men's discussion groups. Or uh, if uh, if you want a copy of like my opening statement or anything like that, I could send that to you. 
And the, the All right, brothers. Well, thank not, you very much. The Presbyterian may not respond, but the Baptist will, so feel free to reach out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, before I go, I have to make the joke. Somebody brought it up at our men's group the other night that uh, if you put me and Tanner together, you, you have one full beard. <laughs> yeah. He's got it here, and I've got it here. So together we're one beard. Yeah. We'll probably figure yes. out at the end of uh, everything that if you put our theologies together, you get a pretty good picture too, maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> All right. I'm, I hope you enjoyed that debate. Uh, the two men worked hard to put that on. You know, uh, there was a lot of things that came up in the middle of that debate that would make for good follow-up, uh, uh, further questions. Um, I think both men did well and trying to answer each other's uh, questions and objections. Um, you know, again, this is one snapshot of the debate, right? If you come into this and you, you, got, you got one person you really like, and maybe, maybe you listened here and you were in a position and another person convinced you, okay, or maybe they didn't, whatever the case, you should follow up with further study and further uh, uh, development of, of your own position or if you're being convinced by the other to the study more. Don't, don't let one man's opinion uh, lead you on this, uh, this fight. Rather, let the Word of God be what draws you and um, what settles your positions. Many men are quick to move their positions. Um, my story, and what I haven't, I haven't told you here about this debate because I wanted to be objective as far as covering these two men, was I held a position and then I saw a debate and it, and, and uh, God used that to begin to, to start to push me in, a, in another direction towards what I thought became a more biblical position. But I, I didn't do it immediately and it wasn't just from one man's uh, word and one debate. But the debate was used by God for that. And so I want to encourage you, go back if you want, re-listen to this or go find some other debates on the topic. Study the Word of God along with it and come to a conclusion from the Word of God and, and um, live it out. Be faithful in it. And also be charitable with your brothers and sisters who may uh, disagree with you on this issue. Uh, uh, point them to the Word of God and, and uh, work together where you can. Uh, it is good to see ironing sharpen iron. And so I hope this was an encouragement to you. Uh, I do have hope in the future to be able to do more debates uh, uh, like this, uh, maybe more baptism debates. Uh, I would like to do uh, debates with atheists and, and believers or uh, Jews and Christians and Muslims. And so if you, if you would like to debate or you know somebody that would be good to debate, let, let me know. Uh, message me. And uh, I want to make this podcast useful for the men and uh, all those who listen. And so if you've got, maybe you have something you want me to discuss or talk about, I'd be glad to do it. But until next time, if you've not bowed the knee to Christ, what are you waiting for? You're not going to ever find any greater peace, any greater hope, any greater purpose, any greater example of being a man than in Christ. Christ is king. And one day he will return if you have not repented and bowed the knee. Uh, then there'll be nothing but judgment. So, dear friends, if you haven't repented, today is the day. Repent and believe. And if you have not, if you have, if you have repented and you are in Christ, well, here is our mission for you. Build, fight, 
protect, lead. This is the patriarchy. Thank you.